Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I knew exactly how much I was going to like Michael O'Neill, the Northern Ireland manager, and when I found out that he'd bought tickets for him and his family to sit behind the goal at the Barca Atletico Madrid Champions League quarterfinal first leg. That's proper football fandom, that is. My impression was confirmed uh, when we began to talk and we shared memories of sports nights sitting up late, praying for there to be football on, and the groan when the horse jumping came on from Wembley, except for the puissance. I love the puissance. But before we go any further, what I like to call a public service announcement. Such fun. Spain, the book that I wrote about the three consecutive international tournaments that La Roja won, is out in paperback form. It's nine ninety nine. It's significantly cheaper than it was in hardback form. If you are the kind of wonderful person that enjoys the way that I rabbit on about football in the big interview, there's a reasonable chance that given the access I got to Spain during those tournaments, You'll probably enjoy the book. There you go. End of announcement. Michael sat there in Edinburgh, having happily rescheduled the interview because I'd been <coughs> somewhat delayed by an aeroplane, and we talked about everything. The genius, and also the dinosaur nature of Jim McLean. I was in 1982's World Cup in Spain, and remember how the country, as far as we could see from people around us, the radio, the television, the papers, came to a standstill when Northern Ireland beat Spain at the Mestalla. Michael was at home. And remembered that for a blip in the midst of the Troubles, there seemed to be more unity, more peace, more community spirit than normal. 82 and 86 were the last times that Northern Ireland had played in a major tournament until Michael took over. Listen to him talking about man management, inspiration. Listen to him saying that Kyle Lafferty could have a major, major tournament this summer. Could even be top scorer, for example. It's in Michael's idea that he could be the breakthrough player like a Toto Scalacci. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But look at what he's done to that squad. Look at his psychology of sport. Listen to him explaining it. Listen to him talking about his view on Montevideo and Luis Suarez and the biting incidents. Snow Patrol, world title boxing, the way in which leading Northern Ireland figures rallied round him, rallied round the other boys in green. This is a bright, clever, football smart man as passionate about the game as you and I, well worth your time. You'll never beat those Irish either. Listen on. We're rolling. Okay. On the big interview. 
a big interview which um, has started somewhat late, but I've already embarrassed myself in front of our guest. So I'm not going to tell you why it started late, although it was wholly my fault. But the journey's been worthwhile because we're with a man who's made people fall in love with the magic of football again. He's taken his national team and rebuilt them, and Michael O'Neill, Northern Ireland, are going to the European Championships. As a proud Northern Islander, before we talk about football, before we think about your professional achievements, what a fantastic boast to be able to say, <laughs> I've taken my team back to a tournament for the first time, time since 1986. There must be occasional mornings in between duties where you wake up and go, hi. But not, not, not bad there. <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, there is moments like that, certainly there is. And, you know, you're doing the school run, now you're doing something as international managers have a bit more time on their hands than, than club managers. And so, no, there is, there's time to reflect on it. And, and at times it is, you know, I do think, how did we do it? How did we manage it? Uh, where did we, you know, where we had to come from to, to do it as well. And uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pleasure in that, obviously. And, uh, but, it, you know, the... Uh, the thing for me is that, you know, was always wanting to try to change it. You know, there was an acceptance probably within Northern Ireland, within the country, within the supporters, within just in general. Well, we're never really going to go to major finals again. Um, we had our time in 82, 86, 58 was obviously, it, it seems like a lifetime ago. So it's nice because, you know, anyone under 40 who's a Northern Ireland fan probably has Virtually very little recollection of 82 and 86, yeah. given the time frame that's passed. So uh, the fact that now for, not only is it going to be our first tournament for all of our players, our coaches and myself, everyone associated, but also for a big portion of our fans, it's going to be their, their, their first tournament as well. But you participated in that feeling that certainly mm. helped guide me into a lifetime of loving football. And our last interview was with Joe Jordan and talking to Joe, it took me back to 1973 beating, when Scotland beat Czechoslovakia. And I was shocked to rediscover the, the passion that it unleashed in me in remembering that night, because not unlike the fans you've been describing, as a, as a Scotland supporter, I've grown used to not expecting us to qualify mm -hmm. and really appreciating even the small positive changes that you can see under Gordon Strachan. But in 1982, a tournament that I went to as a fan was followed Scotland, which was a bit of an epiphany for me, particularly about living in Spain. Northern Ireland were there and did really spectacularly well in mm -hmm. terms of how they played the quality of football as you had out mm -hmm. in that 11 or even in the 13-14 that Billy Bingham could pick spectacular as well. Where were you? What were mm -hmm. you doing? What do you remember of it? Because I suppose you were enjoying that joy of we're there, it's Spain, it's the World Cup, and boys in green are, are going to be playing. What was it like? It was amazing, actually, because when I look back at the... You know, I was 11, I think, 11 or 12. Yeah, and I remember the games. And I always relate it to, like, international football. It was so special because there wasn't the same level of football on the television, obviously. You know, I, I grew up as a Liverpool fan, so I got to see Liverpool predominantly. You would get the, the highlights of match of the day, if you were lucky, you would get, you know, a European match. I used to remember on a Wednesday, for example, I was allowed to stay up late on a Wednesday to watch sports night and the hope that there'd be a European game. And sometimes you got, like, greyhound racing, now you've got <laughs> show jumping. Puissons, I always remember that. And the disappointment. The disappointment in that. It, it, was, it was actually a hammer blow to recover from that and, and get up for school the next day. But, yeah, those, it was magical to watch football. 
in those situations because you know my dad we weren't really in a position as a family to go across and watch Liverpool or do anything I never saw Liverpool play uh, live as a kid or anything like that there now you know kids there's there's easy jet there's you know everyone can get anywhere very very accessible and it's a lot more affordable from that point of view sometimes the football getting into the grounds maybe not as affordable but getting there is and um so I think that you know it was a magical thing when the World Cup you know, the fact that Northern Ireland were in it. The first World Cup I had recollection of, you talk obviously of, of, of 74 and was 78. You know, I remember being allowed to stay up late and watch the games from Argentina, uh, the fantastic Dutch team, the Argentine team, the Brazilian team. You know, it was, it was ph phenomenal just to see that. And again, it just, I was totally engrossed with international football and football at that point in time. So when the next World Cup comes around four years later and suddenly Northern Ireland are taking part in it. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary feeling as a kid to, mm -hmm. to experience that. And you know, I, you know, the games, the atmosphere, just the whole thing, the fact that Northern Ireland were there. And uh, you know, it was, it was amazing to watch right through, to watch all the games, as you say, the quality of the play, to just the build up. I remember the squad being announced and you know, Norman Whiteside was in the squad and this young Manchester United player. And, Aged what, 17, 16, 17 Norman, Yeah, I think Norman was about 16 maybe when he was, yeah, I think it was, I think he was under 17 when he played. I'm nearly sure he, he maybe was just over, but it was it, like, to see him play and think at the time, well, he's only five or six years older than me, you mm -hmm. know, and as a kid, you dream of playing. You know, you think, I want to play in the World Cup, I want to play for Northern Ireland, and, uh, you know, here's a lad that five years older than you is suddenly doing that, and, and on the biggest stage of them all, it was staggering, like, and, uh, you know, those, that team, you know, I, I just remember it so well, the quality of their play, as you say, the iconic images have never gone away. And as I say, we've got a chance now, hopefully, to create some new ones. What was it like at home? Did, I mean, did everything come to a stop? Was it noisy? I, I, I asked that because having followed Scotland, Scotland got knocked out poorly. I'm sorry to mention Alan Hansen's fault for bumping into Willie Miller. But <laughs> we then went on and... and Spain played Northern Ireland and the whole of Spain it was my first time there. Everyone just expected to trounce them yeah. at the Mestalla. And Northern Ireland beat them, beat them well and beat them with 10 men. Yeah, I think it's funny, like, when, when, when you look back, particularly at that game, that's obviously the iconic game of the tournament. But I remember watching the game and, and, and you know, Jerry scoring and putting us ahead. And we, we were kind of, I think the build-up into the game was very much like, you know, the lads have done great, but they're going to be coming home. You know, we've got how they played on the night. And it was great at the time because Northern Ireland, obviously, at that time in the 80, 82, you know, it had a lot of issues, it had a lot of problems, mm -hmm. well documented. Obviously, the troubles were, you know, at the height of things, if, if you could put it like that. But it seemed as if everything just stopped, as you say, and, and the whole focus of the country was on, on Northern Ireland, on Northern Ireland playing. It didn't matter, religion didn't matter, nothing seemed to matter at that point in time other than the fact that Northern Ireland were playing Spain in the World Cup and it was just a magical, a magical game. You know, I remember, you know, I subsequently went to play. I played with quite a number of that 82 team who were still playing when I, you know, I, I came into the squad in 88. So there was a number still playing. You know, I look back and, you know, John McClell, Mal Donachy, Dee McCreary, still playing Norman, obviously, as well. You know, maybe five, six people in the squad that were maybe on the bench as well that, that were still playing when I came in. And, uh, you know, that game sticks out in the memory because, as you're right, you know, when Mal gets sent off, I remember just sitting as a kid in front of the TV, like, just barely able to watch. 
you know, can we hang on? Can we win the game? You know, Pat and goals, like just performing miracles and uh, some of the most unorthodox saves ever, I think, from a goalkeeper as well. But it is, it's, 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 it's a special time. And the fact is, is that when you don't go to a tournament the way Northern Ireland haven't done, you know, 82, if you think about it, was, it was 24 years since 58. So it's almost like a similar scenario to what we face now or what, what we're in now. And uh, when you have that, the legacy of the tournament lasts so long. That picture of Jerry Armstrong goal, I, I was in the, the press room in the new National Stadium in, in Belfast, and you know, it's on the wall, Jerry, head down, knee over the ball, and you know, it, it, it'll never, it'll be there 50 years from now, I think. And, and that's hopefully, as I say, you know, the special moments that we hope to create in this, in this campaign. You've you got a really, you've got a special football man in your staff right now, in Jimmy, Jimmy yeah. Nick. Mm -hmm. Now, Jimmy played there, and presumably had to work hard because of Mal, harder because of Mal's um, red card. When you look back as a fan as a tournament that you weren't at, do you ask him for the, like I'm doing now, for the great old stories? Yeah. Could you, can you draw on his experience of what it was like to be a player abroad in a hot country, in an unusual situation, in a group where you're all, you all share a passport, but you don't all share a club, so mm -hmm. you may or may not get on and maybe relationships to build or there's boredom to fight can you one does he tell you the old stories two can you draw as an experience about how to manage this summer or elements of how to manage this summer as a group yeah definitely i think jimmy i, I brought jimmy in halfway through the campaign billy mckinley had initially been with me and billy had, had left to take the watford job and subsequently was offered the Watford job at a very short space of time and it was taken away from him in a very short space of time as well. And I had uh, Stephen Robinson, who's still with me, and Jim Magilton, who's part of our, our coaches back in Northern Ireland, covered two or three games, the, the, the Faroes, the Greece game and the Romania game. And I felt then we had a break from November to March and I, I'd thought about it along, what will I do and how will I go about this? And you know, I sat with Jimmy and he'd been in the situation actually because when I was a player, Billy Bingham had brought uh, Jimmy in as an assistant, while Jimmy was still, he was basically uh, the manager, he was player manager at Wraith Rovers Jim at the time, yeah. I think, yeah. Successfully. Too. Yeah, very successfully. And uh, I think um, I saw how he was as an assistant manager then. I, I'd good, I always, like as players, we, we kind of hoped that Jimmy was the next manager. Mm -hmm. And it didn't turn out like that, you know, and, and that, that's the nature of football. And I just felt I needed someone that, if they came in, we were at such a critical time in the group, wouldn't feel the need to over prove themselves, yeah. wouldn't be equally you know, too quiet or anything, that it would be a seamless transition. And there was no one better than Jimmy actually has proven to be the right thing to do. You, know? you never know when you make these decisions. But Jimmy comes in, he's great with the players. He's just a great person to have around the players. The players really respect they love him. He has a million stories, you know what I mean? He can tell a million stories, not only relating to his time with Northern Ireland, but throughout the game as you know, he's played in a great club career as well, obviously, as well. And um, he's just good. You know, I, people always say to me, like, you know, he doesn't take that much of the training. Now, we, we divide, but he's, he's invaluable to me just from the point of view, I'll talk things through him and say, what do you think about that? And he said, well, I'm not sure what you have thought about that. And he, he always gives me, he throws something back at me, which I think is very important. He'll go, well, yeah, that's okay, but have you thought about this situation or have you thought about that? And that's invaluable to me because the other, like Stephen Robinson's a very good coach, but he doesn't have that experience in the dugout that Jimmy has. Jimmy has 
listen, I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess at how many games he's been in the dugout for. And even, in, you know, there's been times in the, in, in the campaign where maybe you think, I, I might change it, and Jimmy, just leave it a little bit longer, leave it a wee bit longer. And so that, that type of thing is invaluable, because you need a, another set of eyes who's watched so many games, but not just watch games, but watch games where he's had to have to make decisions on this too. It's a different thing to watch a game and take the information in on the pitch and then have to make a decision on it as opposed to just watching the game. And Jimmy has that, you know, he has you know, that experience in abundance. But he'll be invaluable to us because I think he's a great man. My biggest fear in this tournament going forward is as a group, we've never been together for this length of time. The, thing, the fact of being in France and everything, I think, is, is less of an issue because the players are so well-travelled now with their clubs. If you go back to 82 and 86, it probably wasn't the case as much. Now they're so well-travelled that the fact of being abroad, I think that won't be the issue. But the key is we, we have never been together as a squad for this length of time. Never, you know, we've not. So typically a, a double header for us is nine, ten days max. Now we're going to be together for a minimum of about 35 days with one or two days off in between, you know, where we've tried to give them little breaks leading into the tournament. And that's the challenge. And I think that Jimmy will really be worth his weight in gold in that situation. Well, it, one of the things we try to do, Michael, in the big interviews is attempt to explain to people the machinations, the workings of that situation. Mm-hmm. Now, I think think I might understand, but I've never been in either yours or Jimmy's position before. Just explain why it might be a challenge to have a group of talented professionals together at a tournament for a long space of time. What are the list of things that you're looking to um, diminish or watch out for or take advantage of? Well, I think the biggest thing for us in terms of our success today and, and I think continuing to be successful is, you know, spirit is massive for us. You know, we, we won't have the best squad of players at the tournament. The players know that. They've openly said that themselves. But what we have and what has got us to this point is we've built a really strong spirit within the group. When you're picking players from different levels of football, which we do, you know, at times there's a massive gulf in terms of players' earnings and yeah. all of that kind of thing, which I always think is testament to, if you want to put about our big hitters, for, for want of a better word, is because they are so humble. You know, they're very, you know... I won't put words in your mouth, but I would, I would suggest Johnny would probably be... Johnny Evans would, given where he's been... The responsibility on his shoulders, he'd be right up there in that group you're talking about, the yeah. big hitters, the big earners, totally. different Johnny experience. Davis, you know, Brump, McCauley, the players that have played consistently, you know, in the Premier League, you know, they come into our group, they mix with, there's no, no differential between them. You know, they're good pals. You see the likes of, you know, Josh McGuinness, for example, who's playing here in the SPL. We know that money in the SPL is not, you know, it's not abundant at this minute in time. You know, he's a big part of our group and he mixes well and you, know, you see it in terms of how they are about the hotel, what they do as a group, what they do when they do things together. There's no uh, you know, differential in terms of any types of clique in our group. And I was surprised, it was, it was actually Craig Cathcart rooms with Shane Ferguson. And they're two polar opposites in terms of, you know, Craig's, first of all, they're both different religions, which isn't, isn't an issue. But, you know, it's, they come from... There totally, might have been a yeah. time when it might have been. They're totally, to, their backgrounds are totally different, I, I would say. come from 
And yet, him and Fergie would have been the most unlikely room combination that I, that I would have thought. And yet, you know, they got on great. They got on like a house on fire. And those are the things that I think in this squad I've seen better than in the early days. Not that it was bad in the early days, but it never got to the level that it's got to now. When you get like 22, 23 lads, they actually seem to enjoy each other's company. It's unusual, to be honest, because, you know, in that number, there's generally always one or two you know, we'll be a little bit more isolated, a little bit more insular, but we don't seem to have that in this group. Do you think about your room pairings and, and, and who should work with whom just to build a bit of a bond? Or? Yeah, I think it's important. It is important. And it's funny, we, we give the more senior players the option to room on their own if they want. And it's funny that, you know, they, if they want to room on their own and the likes of Stephen Davis and Chris Baird don't take that option. They prefer to room together. Johnny and Corey room together, so it's still like, it's almost probably as if they're back in the house when they were you kids. automatically, when you see that, it's a brilliant litmus test, isn't it? Yeah. You automatically know that something's good there. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. And, and you see it when, the nice feeling in the group when they're at dinner. We, we normally have the hotel set up for them where they'll eat, obviously, and together, but we have a you know, a games room right next to it or as part of the... And, and they, they're not in a hurry to get away. All of those kind of things that I, I, I think are nice and, and uh, it's encouraging. And, and I think that we can look forward to the summer if you're going to spend that much time together. You know, as, as I said to the players, and I says, listen, it's not my job as the manager to amuse you, you know. <laughs> Might be Jimmy's. <laughs> but <laughs> but it'll not be my job. You know, like, so, you know, I'm... I'm constantly was speaking to Stephen, listen, you have to make sure that, you know, we don't let that become a factor in this, we, we, that the time we spend together, that this is a memorable experience. Because you hear... Fantastic. Yeah, you, you hear, you hear ex- players coming away, oh, it was the worst, I yes. couldn't wait to get home, yeah. you know, I couldn't... I don't want it to be like that. I want every player that comes away to say, it was fabulous to be part of that tournament. You know, I felt so involved. It was a great experience for me. I only got 10 minutes on the pitch, or I didn't get any minutes on the pitch. But it's something that they'll bring with them for the rest of their career. And, and as I said, like, you know, I've said since qualification, the tournament should be the next phase of us. Like, we want to come here again. We don't want to be 30 years, a generation. You know, we, we want this to be the first step of a continued challenge to qualify, which we haven't done enough. I've got very little to input to somebody who's proved to be a fantastic man manager, group manager, philosopher and, and psychologist. But when you give the keys to the room out on the first day in France in the hotel, be very careful that one of the players doesn't necessarily get the biggest room. And that's not because of egos. But in 2008, when Spain, the eventual winners, got to their hotel, for some fluke, Joanne Captavilla, the Villarreal left back, who'd play all the way through that tournament and the next tournament and superb and underrated, got a very big room and it became the social centre and it was very happy until at night when he was left on his own and he thought it was a ghost. And he couldn't <laughs> sleep in it until he called Santi Cazorla to move back in with him. <laughs> and he was taunted the whole tournament about this ghost. He, he was absolutely convinced that there was a ghost in this room. So I don't, I'm not actually advocating exorcisms. Right. <laughs> but just be careful who gets the big, sort of spooky, scary room. Yeah, just okay. to, that's the only thing I've got to input on that. <laughs> that idea about um, if they approach it and have it as a memorable experience, you reckon that, one, that would augment the existing team spirit and be, people would be pulling for each other and working hard and training, even if... Because you've spoken really well about knowing that certain players in a 22-23 man group probably aren't going to get game time. Yeah. But it's imperative that every working day, every working session, 
they're pushing the players who are going to play. Mm. So therefore, there's, there needs to be a sort of unity. And nobody on the on the training pitch in France is saying, "Well, you know, I'm just in, a, in an hour I'm going to be on the beach or out in the lounge just catching a tan because there's nothing else for me." They yeah. want to push yeah. your starting guys into top form. Yeah, I think so. It, it's it's very important. You know, we do a lot of tactical work. We've become a good team without the ball. That was always on pro. You know, we had to become a good team without the ball. We have to recognise that. You know, if we go and play against teams with, with better players, bigger nations, that we may not have as much of the ball as what we would like. When you do that type of work and training, it's not always the most enjoyable type of work. It's difficult work for players at times, and, and you have to get a, you have to make sure that the length of time that you do it for is nailed down, because I think if you overdo it, you lose the message. So, and the repetition of it is very important as well. So, repeating it, you know, without them going, oh, we're doing this again, that type of thing. But it only works if the players, as a group, buy into it. That's what we've had. And to be fair, Stephen Davis, after we qualified in Finland, or well, we qualified against, after we, we got the point in, in, in game 10 in Finland, you know, I'd said to Stephen, maybe you should say something after the game. I just said, listen, maybe you should say something. So the president had come in, Jim Shaw had come in and spoke to the players, a magnificent achievement, first time Northern have ever won a qualification group. And then Stephen spoke, and he thanked the players who hadn't played so much. Yeah, brilliant. And it was more powerful coming from him than me. Do you know what I mean? It's far more powerful, and you know, that because he acknowledged the fact that it doesn't work. You know, when we do tactical stuff, when we do 10v10, when we try and do this, it does not work unless they embrace it. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult, that work, because you're going to lads and you're asking them to do something. You play them out of position, for example. I mean, Josh is a great example, Josh McGinnis, because there was one game where I said, Josh, I'm going to need you to play centre-half on the other team. And he just went, that's no problem. Right. You know, he, he did, as opposed to thinking, well, I'm not going to get in the team at centre-half, so, you know, what's the point of me doing this and that type of thing? You know, the sacrifice, he was prepared, listen, as long as it, it adds value to the group. That type of thing is what will, when we go away, for that length of time, that 30-odd days that I'm talking about, that type of sacrifice will be so critical for us. It'll give us a chance in the games. Do you know, I mean, I'm amongst the things that stand out about you, and there are many. It's remarkable listening to you for the second time in a short mm. space of time. I'm in already. You've got, you've got my complete mm. conviction, and if I were one of your players, then I'd be ears pricked back. Genuinely speak as if you've been at two or three long tournaments yourself as a player. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how the hell? Because you also, as successful as you are right now, you are making a step into, if not the unknown, something that you don't have first-hand experience of. Mm. But I've watched international managers during my journalistic career mm -hmm. not have that much savvy or know-how going into a tournament. I, th I think the biggest thing is preparation and what I mean by that is that, that sounds a really obvious statement, but what I mean by that is that the players see the level of preparation that you've gone to, because then they actually, I think there's an element of respect from that. A good example of that, when we, we went to South America on a tour before the, at the start of this, this campaign, it was just before the 2014 World Cup, it was a tour that had been offered to a few countries. I don't think we were the first choice, let's just say. <laughs> and I think people go, I don't fancy that tour. But we took it, and uh, you know it was a game against Uruguay and Chile. You know, like anything, there's a bit of negotiation with the association and difference. We had players that didn't want to go at that stage of the season. You know, and I was a bit disappointed with that, but I had to accept it. You know, that's the end. Of, you know, I don't have enough players where I can say, well, if you don't go, you're never going to be picked again. For example, I don't have that luxury or that, I suppose, hold over the players. And 
the reasons were genuine in most of the cases, so we got on with it. But the players who went came back and said it was one of the best tours they'd ever been on. I went out with just myself and David Curry, the team liaison, prior to that. And, and we did like a whirlwind four-day tour of, of South America, flying into Montevideo, making sure the hotel was right, making sure the training facility was right, flying to Chile, doing the same thing, looking at different... I left nothing to chance because I thought, if I take these guys away and this is a disaster, it's going to be such a negative going into the first game of the Euros. And I think the players saw the level of preparation that I'd gone to and responded because of that. You know, it was interesting. We had, we had six business class seats on the plane. And I got, we gave them the six most experienced players. We gave them, you know, to, to Davis, to Baird, the players who Aaron Hughes. And, and we did it on caps. And then, you know, we had some premium economy seats and some economy. Mm-hmm. And we, but we flipped it on its head for, and the boys are spe- appreciate, we flipped it on its head for the flight from uh, Montevideo to Santiago, which was only a couple of hours. But all the staff got to sit in, in business class then and the guys. So there was a good bond. There was something developing then. You know, we were beaten narrowly by Uruguay 1-0. Chile beat us 2-0, scored twice in the last the Chile team that would go on to knock out Spain, the, the, yeah. the holders, yeah. about four weeks later and outplay them dramatically. Yeah, and they were a phenomenal team. Like, yep. I mean, it was an education for me as a coach to go and watch Chile and how they played. And it was, it was phenomenal, you know, in terms of how they played and that type of football, you know, and, and how we, we had to play to try and combat that, you know, to try and play against that. But that, those things, I think, are, are, I suppose, maybe that type of preparation, getting back to your original sort of question, hopefully, as I say, the players will have, will have seen the level of preparation, not only myself, but the level of preparation from the association, from the, 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 you know, the people on the ground, the back room, what, what they've done, and, and, you know, I think that all helps. There's, that, that all helps in the mood. You know, I feel at the minute that sometimes in international football there can be distance between the people in the association and the players. Mm. I feel that now in our association that distance doesn't really exist and that's a healthy thing. Too often people come and ask you to do stuff and players go, no, I'm not doing that. We're not getting that scenario. It's very important. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. A lot of work has gone in to make the, the players feel their achievement of qualification is recognised within the stadium. The stadium at home now is a, is, is, a, is a positive place to be for the players. Too often and too long it wasn't, it wasn't that. And uh, as I say, whilst I don't have this, the experience of being in a tournament, I think you know, what we have done will hopefully you know, stand us in good stead. One of the things I've learned talking to footballers over the years is that very nearly the most powerful medicine it's when their leader, whether it's a coach or a manager, says, if you do this, if you follow me, if you follow my instructions, this will happen. Mm-hmm. And then when it does, as a leader, you then have to work quite hard to lose them because yeah. they're in. Yeah. Now, I think you, you've done that time and time again because it's, I don't want to tell your stories, but it's infamous that you said to them, look at the group you didn't qualify from, mm-hmm. take the two winning teams out. Yeah. Could you work through that group? Yes. They did what you asked, they did qualify. There are a number of examples that I'd like you to explain, but your group psychology, your ability to get into the heads of your players on a number of things, who they should and shouldn't expect to beat, getting out of the rut of defeats, which you, mm-hmm. you touched on today, discipline. Talk about these elements and how you approach them and the means in which you, I guess you think you thought you were right in what you were saying to them, mm-hmm. but how did you get into their heads and make them convinced at a time when it was still practical or theoretical, it was on a blackboard, or mm. it was you and them talking, they weren't actually seeing the fruits of their labour yeah. yet. I had the, when I went back to the the first campaign, and it was you know pretty 
nailed on that I was going to continue in the job despite that it had been a, a real challenge. You know, I, I, I was trying to find positives. You know, it's easy. It was trying to find, um, I suppose, messages to the players to say, look, this is what we're going to have to do and this is what we're going to have to do different or we will get what we got in the last campaign. And there were a number of things. There was, I showed them the group. I took away Portugal and Russia. I showed them, well, look, now with the, with the qualification process for the Euros, you now have the chance as a third-place team. You, we'll get a shot at it, OK? We'll at least get a playoff. So can you win that group? And the group was Israel, Azerbaijan, Northern Ireland, Luxembourg. I says, can you win that group? And you, yeah, of course we can win that group. I says, right, so that's our starting point. That's where we're going to start from. I said, for us to, to win that group, I said, we, we're going to have to change some things within, within what we do now. And in the previous campaign, we had only had two players that had played in all ten games, Stephen Davis and Roy Carroll. We hadn't had consistency of selection. Too often we were without big players, whether it was suspension, injury, you know, and, and, and our disciplinary record was poor. You know, I think at the time, I think we had like 24 yellow cards and three red cards, uh, which was a high, high number. I, I point this, I said, but we hadn't committed that many fouls, actually. Only, only Germany and I think Spain had committed fewer fouls over the 10 games. So our perception, how we were perceived by the officials. What was that then? In your opinion? I think there was a frustration in the group of players because we were in every game and we continually came out the wrong side of the result. I looked at the games at 75, 80 minutes and I'm thinking, you know, everything was in the balance. You know, we, we never played out a game in the last 10 minutes of the game where we're like 3-0 down, the game's dead, you know, 2-0 down. The game, every game went right to the 90th minute, pretty much. And... and we ultimately came out, we lost games, we should have drawn, we, we drew games, we should have won. It was trying to let the players see that because they don't always see that, I don't think. You know, international football for a player is something that you dip into and dip out of a little bit, so you're not aware of it. I won't name names, but we, we had one player who, who's you know, a big player for us. He hadn't played in the winning Northern Ireland team for four years, but he wasn't aware of that. Didn't, it, it wasn't, yeah. And another two years for some of them, I'm like, listen, do you actually recognise that? When getting back to the consistency of selection, I showed them that Portugal and Russia, Russia had won the group, Portugal were second. Like their consistency of selection was so high. There were so many players that had played 10 games. I think the Russians had something like eight players that had played 10 games. So when you think about that, Capello didn't really have to change his team. Well, just, you know, he was just tinkering with it, slipping a player in. And that. Paulo Bento with Portugal was very much the same, you know. And uh, so I said, listen, we need to get a consistency of selection. We cannot lose players through suspension. And, and ironically, the players that we lost through suspension were like, you know, the likes of Chris Brunt, the likes of Gareth McCauley, Chris Baird. You know, they were our big players. If you made a list of players you didn't want to lose, yeah. predominantly they'd be the ones. They'd be the ones, you know. We lost Johnny through injury in a few games, Johnny through suspension. We just couldn't do it. Kyle, suspension, injury. You know, if you look back at the last campaign, Kyle only started four games out of ten. You know, we need it. And in, in, in this qualification, Kyle started nine. So that was a massive thing, that, that message to get into them was a massive thing, I think, to uh, let them see that. And, and then you have to find, I, I believed that they were closer in the last campaign than they realised. They just thought, well, we finished fifth, it was a really bad campaign. But I said, well, look, how many points do you think you could have got? I said, well, you could easily have got 15 points. And I showed them where I felt, and they were, yeah, we could have got 15 points. And then I showed them third place in 15 points would have got you third in nearly any group in the 2014 qualification for the World Cup. I said, so what you're saying to me is achievable. 
and it's tangible that we can get a shot at it if, if we can get to that. You know, as I say, the biggest key in it all is, is momentum early in the group. And I always like, I've learned that over, I've only been in two campaigns. But the difference, I always remember in the World Cup we played our first four games, we drew three and were beaten by Russia in game one. And we should have had seven points and we had three. And the mindset of the players coming into the fifth game, had they come into that game with seven points, we would have beaten Israel, I'm convinced of it. Yeah. We chased the game as well. We chased the game against Israel because we needed to win it and we lost it. We wouldn't have maybe had to do that. Yep. You know, maybe we wouldn't have had to do it. And suddenly, you know, with every point and, and with every win, it just, it just builds that momentum all the time. It just builds that belief. Can I pick, because this is fascinating for somebody who loves the game, can I pick, first of all, a disciplinary thing? So you, you identified a trend mm-hmm. and you asked them to correct it, mm-hmm. which they did. Mm-hmm. But let's look at it, because there's a link straight back to Maldonado, because I I'm not crystal clear, but I think he committed the type of tackle that you're talking about that <clears throat> he probably shouldn't have got himself sent off that day. Yeah. And as a Scot, I can remember a dozen campaigns where you're like, ah, we've had a player sent off again or booked and suspended when it wasn't necessary. And it will tend to happen to Wales and England too. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not unique to our culture, but I've always felt that we, number one, are pretty bellicose mm-hmm. as, as a culture and pretty warrior-like. And two, one thing I'm absolutely sure about we spoke to Damien Duff a couple of issues ago at the big interview, and he talked about being absolutely at ease with the dark arts. Mm-hmm. Because Mourinho had said to him, you have to do this, you have to do that. And he said, I'll never cheat. But the dark arts are now absolutely interwoven in being a leading professional. If you have the chance to do X or Y, you do it. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a fabulous footballer, yeah. fabulous person too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yet, he embraces those dark It takes us a long time to either learn to how to play a referee, how to avoid a booking. Is that the type of thing you're talking about that we don't do well? And, and what should we be doing as footballers who are maybe not elite elite? Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, as well as, you know, for a lot of our players who come from maybe Championship League One and then they go into the international stage, it's a big jump. It's a big jump to handle in the referee as well, I think. That's and, a phrase you, that I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, and how they do that. You know, if I look back at that, that first campaign, I say, we, we got the fewest number of free kicks of any team in Europe. And I'm thinking, is that because we don't have that level of possession? But when I look through the stats, you know, I think Liechtenstein had over 100 free kicks <laughs> and they barely have the ball, for example. So it showed a, a level of maybe we just weren't shrewd enough in how we played, you know, and, and in terms of gave ourselves opportunities. And, you know, this campaign we've been hugely effective from set pieces, really effective. But if you don't get free kicks, and you're not going to get the opportunity to, to exploit that. And uh, I, you know, I don't know what the exact stats are on the free kicks this year, but certainly you know, there were just little things that I... I also think it helped... Like I, I sort of said that these were hard done by in the last campaign. I sort of turned it to them and gave them a bit of sympathy. And I said, well, look, he's hardly got a free kick, and every free kick he got was punished by the yellow card or almost like a red card. So take that, but we have to learn from it as well. We have to change the referee's perception to us as well. We have to manage the referee better. And, and in this campaign, you know, we didn't get a suspension until game nine. Then we got Does three. <laughs> <laughs> Which game, or uh, until after game eight, sorry, yeah. So the turnaround was massive, you know. Now, there's no doubt that the third card helps the smaller countries as well. You know, I think that's a good thing, what, what UEFA introduced, because... The nature of the game now, like for example, you know, Gareth McCauley in the previous campaign had been booked in the first and second game. So he misses the third game. You know, so you're, two, you're, three, you're in game three 
and one of your big players is missing. I think Chris Brunt was the same. Him and Gareth were both booked in the first two games. So suddenly you're in a situation where two of your Premier League players aren't, aren't available and you're only in the third game of the tournament. So the third card, I think, is certainly a bit of a... It's a godsend to the smaller nations and, and, and the smaller squads. But I think it's something that we've done, we've done well in this campaign. Maybe it's useful now to put the microscope on individual player psychology because maybe you'll tell me that I haven't got the right one, but the one that stands out to me is Kyle Lafferty. You know, I'm sure he's definitely an individually charming lad, mm -hmm. but as a person or as a footballer, he's often shown rough edges mm -hmm. in how he might celebrate or <laughs> how he might even appear, irrespective yeah. of what he's actually like. Yeah. And it looks like he's the player that you've most crafted and moulded to a different way of behaviour, different attitude, and his importance. I mean, I can only say it's Healy-esque, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is a big compliment. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, What's Ky happened between you? Kyle, Kyle, first of all, the, I always look at lads and go, if I was in the dressing room, would I be mates with him? Do you know what I mean? Would, it, would you? And, yeah. and Kyle is a lad you would be friends with, because he's, he's, he's a genuinely, he's a good lad. You know what I mean? Yes, he do, he's done some stupid things, but, you know, it's not through malice, it's through naivety, I would say, more than anything else. And which of us? Yeah. But <laughs> putting my hand up. Yeah. <laughs> which of us have it? <laughs> we're all, we're all guilty of that, of course we are. But I think that with Kyle, he was at a stage where I think he needed to look at his career, and maybe it took... And I remember it, we brought him on in the Portugal game at home, and we'd beaten Russia, and, and Martin Patterson had scored the goal, and Kyle had been suspended for that game. Or no, he'd been injured. Sorry, he'd been injured for that game. And uh, so, you know, I'd left him on the bench. And I think he was a bit hurt that I'd left him on the bench. But he came on, he wanted to make an impact, and he got sent off very quickly. He made a challenge that, in hindsight, having looked back at it, it was one of those challenges which looked a lot worse than it actually was. You know, one where someone's clearing the ball, Portuguese player was clever. He made it look as if Kyle had been really late. He hadn't really made that much contact with him, if any contact, but it was a straight red card. So you know, we came in on the next morning. We were playing again. We were leaving to go and play in, in Luxembourg a day or so later. And you know, he apologised and obviously he was suspended then for the Luxembourg game. And I had had his career ready for him because I felt there's going to come at some point. We're going to have to address this at some point. And you know, I said, look, look at your career I said you know for me you haven't played enough league games your discipline it's not great you know there's a lot of bookings in your career you know, there's been a lot of times in your career you've been brought off I said so is that tactical is that injury that you know but I said look at your goal return his goal return was one and two it was really high and I said so Kyle the perception of you has to change how people perceive you has to change he hadn't played poorly for me in the, in the previous four games, and, and if anything, his work rate for the team is always unquestionable. He'll give you every ounce he's got. You know, at times, I think, you know, he needs to try and curtail his, his runs and what he does. He will basically run himself to a standstill for the team. And, I, I, you know, I said to him, look, you, you're going to have to change, A, how you're perceived, and B, how your game is. You look to me like a player that's not totally focused all the time. So when we get you in here, we need you focused. And the first game, he came really back in again after the suspension, and Kyle didn't go to South America, for example. And he came in for the Hungry game. We brought him back in, and you know, day one, sat him down, things and stuff. And he had other things in his life that were going on that were maybe you know negative for him, or not the easiest things to deal with. And uh, you know, I'm good, I'm, I'm fine. And you know, I said, listen, we need a massive campaign out of you. We need ten games out of you. And uh, you know, the first day I felt he wasn't focused, so I brought him back in again. I said, listen, Kyle. 
this is what I'm talking about. He says, and he was like, you could see he was a bit, I think he was a bit hurt that I'd pulled him in. And he says, no, I, I don't have to be here. And I says, no, you don't. I says, you genuinely don't have to be here. You know, international football has a choice. I says, but we need you to be here. You need to be here for this team and you need to be add something to this team. You need to give them something. And, you know, whether that message was in his ears or whether he took that away, he played great for us in Budapest, made the equaliser, scored the winner. And he's not looked back from that. You know, it, it was what he needed. You know, and he went, he subsequently went on, scored seven goals in, in the campaign. Huge performances for us. You know, at a time when his club career wasn't, he was bouncing about a little bit. He'd been at Sion, he'd been at Palermo. He was now back at Norwich. You know, we now see a situation where he's at Birmingham. He needs a home, you know, Kyle. And if someone will give him that, he will be an effect, effective player. There's no doubt about that. You know, I, I think Kyle will look at the tournament. He will see it as an opportunity to go, I'm going to just blast this and give this everything I've got. And I think he's capable. He's one of those players that is capable of having a big tournament. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so than having like three or four great seasons together at club level. You know, he might not. And the nature of it, the intensity of it, and, and the focus that, you know, what we need is application and focus for a really short space of time, 30 days. Give us that. And hopefully, as I say, I expect to get that. Very shrewd analysis. Before you even got to end the sentence, I was, there was a light bulb going over my head going, yeah, tournament player. You qualify through the group, four goals in six games, and, and suddenly Kyle Lafferty is the name on European lips everywhere, yeah. and he's Toto Scalacci or he's Oleg Salenko. It, yeah. it, it happens again and again, a, a, a biologic completely. And this is the big interview, so I won't be embarrassed if you tell me not to be silly. But whether it was deliberate or not, were there stages in your career where you could have, had, you could have done with somebody doing exactly that to you? Because, you know, you were an exceptionally talented footballer mm. and I'm not supposing I've seen you say, mm, maybe should have done more mm. for whatever reason. Was, were you using something that you learned from or is it, are these things strands completely separate in, in what you took from your own career and life and choices to, to what you were saying as a, as a manager, as a, as a man manager? Is there a connection or is it simply you doing what needed to be done and it had nothing to do with your personal experience? No, I think it does. It does go back to, to my playing career. I, I do feel and I have that sense of underachievement as a player. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, I always felt, you know, to play so young for your country, you know, I played at 18 and then to you, your career to be basically a first team player from that age and, and the career that I had, I, I felt that had I been at times better managed, man managed, I would have got more out of my career. Part of that's my fault as well. I maybe didn't manage the situation well with the managers either. So I always look at it before I go into that situation of potential confrontation with a player. I think you have to sit back and say, right, how is it from his angle? What is he looking at from his angle? What is going on in his head? Because, you know, I can't just always come in and go, well, he's not doing this, he's not, because he doesn't do this, he should do that, you know. There has to be reasons behind that from his angle. And, and I always look back at my own career and I think that, yeah, had I been maybe handled differently, I was probably quite insecure as a player. I probably need more reassurance than, than some other players. I think at times I, 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 I didn't get that. I think um, also if I had a manager had sat me down and says, listen, these are the weak points in your game. If you get these in your game, you will be a top player. You will be a top, top player. 
because I think at 18 that everyone thought I was going to be that top player. You know, that was certainly the way I was perceived as a young player. And, and when you fall short, and, and I try, particularly with young lads now, it never leaves you. What, what's happened now as a manager for me is great and it's hugely satisfying. And it's, but the underachievement of the player will never go away. Mm. It'll always be there. And, and that's something that you can't get back. You can never get that back. You know, if I speak to players, you know, that's the message. And it's more difficult at international level, I think, because you're not with them. You, you, to get to know them, it's yeah. harder to get to know them a yeah. little bit. And um, I only feel with some of our lads now that I really know them. I really know them, you know. Craig Cathcart's a bit of an example of that, you know, who wouldn't, you maybe wouldn't speak to him on a regular basis, but he's a player now that I always felt there was so much more in him. And he became disillusioned with the game at Blackpool, to be honest, I knew that. Here he is now, he's in the Premier League with Watford. He's going to European Championships and, and, and he, he has, again, I think, a player that can have a big tournament for us as well. So I do, I think you always hear, people obviously, some players, I think, will, will be, want to be managers like the managers that they've played under. I, I don't want to be a manager, you know, but the experiences of how those managers handled me helps me, I think, then, in terms of how I deal with Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Situations with players. It's funny because um, I think in football, neither are the majority of participants particularly good at communication and, and nor are the majority of participants particularly good at learning and then applying. You do uh, a lot. You see a lot of footballers learning and standing in line of what's been mm -hmm. done to them, and yeah, yeah. often to break away from that in life as well as in yeah. sport is very important indeed. Um, I'm not going to mention his name, Jim McLean, <coughs> but you're given a nice bridge into because we appreciate the people that listen to the big interview, sending in questions. And Frankie Connolly from Donegal has said, Michael used to play with my brother Paddy, Paddy Connolly at Dundee United. I've always found him to be one of the most funniest, the funniest, most engaging and genuine guys I've ever met in football. And I don't think he means his own brother. 
Please ask Michael, was Jim McLean a big influence in his management style? <laughs> and who was the most influential manager he ever played under? Um, there's a nice compliment for the big interview after that, but we won't read it out because I'm, I'm not that much of a pluff. Jim McLean. I remember, um, I remember Walter Smith saying to me one day, don't get Jim angry. And Fergie saying the same. I remember Stuart Baxter who managed Finland and South Africa. And it was at Dundee United a little while before he went south, and he said that Jim literally scared the shit out of him mm -hmm. and was a violent, raging maniac. And he formed part of the new firm, brought the old firm, took Dundee United within inches, I think they were cheated, mm -hmm. of the European Cup final against mm -hmm. Liverpool. And um, you and he had ups and downs. Um, Frankie's question. Paddy Connolly, Jim McLean. Paddy, Paddy was a, a teammate of mine at Dundee United and, and a, still a very good friend of mine, actually. One, one of my best friends in football, to be fair. And uh, I think there was a common bond between a lot of the younger players at Dundee United because of the environment that we were in. You know, it was a very harsh environment. It was not harsh in terms of the day-to-day -day of being a professional footballer, of course, that's not harsh. But in terms of, you know, the level of criticism, you know, and, and, and you know, how you were treated when you, at times when you were out of the team was, was, was so harsh at times. And you felt so, you never got a valid reason, you know what I mean? You just, you, were just, you could just be cast aside. Sometimes you were cast aside for months. You know, it was, you know, you were totally, I was cast aside for, about seven months at Dundee United, where I barely played a game over a contract dispute. You know, I was in the last year, just totally cast aside. And Jim McLean, you know, he goes back to the era of the great Scottish Steen, obviously. You know, like Jim McLean was uh, our Jock Steen's assistant, I think, in the 82 World Cup, if I'm, isn't that correct? I think. Yeah, so, I mean, that showed the regard that Jock Steen had for mm -hmm. Jim McLean. And Jim McLean was a genius in many ways, he was ahead of his time. You know, we always looked at every angle to try and to, try and to um, make things better. You know what I mean? Like when you look back, like sports science, strength conditioning, psychology. Uh, we were exposed to all of those things at Dundee United. All of them. We trained hard. We were given. You know, we were constantly um, from above. You know, you don't do enough. You don't do enough. You are too privileged. You constantly that you were you were hit with that constantly. You know what I mean? You need to do more. And in many ways, it was right. The, the, the only problem was the delivery of the message was always so harsh. And how it was delivered to you is that you probably, if it had been delivered with a little bit more softer touch to it, a little bit more empathy with you, you know, I know you're going through a tough time here, but we can get you... It was always done in such a harsh uh, way that, you know, players tended to drift away from it. From a club point of view, like Jim, I mean, basically, as a manager, you couldn't have... He created it the perfect situation. You know, he had long-term contracts for players. The players who played in the team got the most money. Mm. So he had always got that stranglehold. Like, there was no one at Dundee United strolling about on big wages not contributing, like what you get in the modern game now. And he put that all together. You know, he, he, he gave himself such a, a amount of control at the club that through the contractual situation, obviously the board situation, all of those kind of things, that basically it was his club. It was his club. And, and so how he managed the players, he was answerable to no one, really. 
in, in relation to that. You know, it wasn't as if you were in a situation saying, well, I think I've been harshly treated here by the manager. I might, you know, speak to the board or whatever. That didn't exist. You just were like, you were harshly treated. Get on with it. But there was a lot. I've taken an awful lot out of my time at Dundee United, an awful lot, because I felt that there was so much good in it. And it's just a shame that there was the element of bad in it. And again, we underachieved at Dundee United for the group of players that we had. We never won anything in those four years. Yes, we were always in the top three or four of the league, a few semi-finals, one cup final, Motherwell beat us. I think with a little bit more of a, a softer side to it, he was close to building a really top-class football environment there, you know, a really, some, some, which I think, and maybe, maybe what happened was, again, the generations of players always change, like we talk about it now, you know, what kids are like now to what we were like as kids. But us as kids then, we were different from Hegarty, Neri, and those players that had been historically, had been fantastically successful, Bannon for Dundee United. So we were slightly different. So we were maybe less tolerant of that environment than they were at that time. But they had had great success as a team, as you touched on there. And, and possibly, as I say, the difference between, you know, Jim McLean and Ferguson, obviously, look, were at loggerheads and you know Dundee United Aberdeen the new firm but Ferguson was able to change with the game and Jim McLean I think would never have been able to change with the game and, and, and how when I say change with the game change with how players were in the game rather than the game changing tactically or anything like that there but change with how the how players were and how how he adapted to that and I think that I think he knew that but and that was why he never left Dundee United one of the guests we had a great friend of ours, Darren Fletcher, on the, on the big mm. interview, talked about precisely that when he was going through the, the worst experience of his life, when, his, when illness was threatening to rob him, not simply of his playing career, but um, the quality of quality his life, future yeah. life. Yeah. And Alex Ferguson instantly treated him like a human being, not like one of his players, not like an employee, not like a failing resource, mm -hmm. as Shankly famously did with anybody who's out of the team because of illness or injury. They just didn't exist at Liverpool. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's distances Alex Ferguson again and, and over the years. The stereotype that you're alluding to about the, that he had equally the same capacity to instill fear or to criticise or be demanding to McLean, that hairdryer stereotype, that, that for years before his retirement, that didn't characterise how he would interact with players, the right phraseology that he would use, mm -hmm. like you did with Carl, the degree to which he could understand what might be going, in a, mm -hmm. going on in a player's head. That's, that's a fantastic skill, and I think it's why we're here uh, with you today, simply because you haven't just made your team more effective and more successful, but you've clearly got under the skin of your players. There's one more question to deal with, which is from Warren Heyman. It was a complete surprise to me. Sturm Graz in Austria. What was the story with them and you? <laughs> Uh, it's an interesting, it's funny how, how things work in football and the timing of things is, is crucial, but when I was in the last year of my contract at Hibs, I was keen to, to leave. I wanted to get back to England. The Premier League was, was, was starting, you know, or it had been three or four years in, or I wanted a new experience or something. And it was the first year of Bosman. Bosman came in at Easter. And it changed Hibs's kind of um, view of the whole contract negotiation. You know, suddenly they're going, we might lose him now for nothing, because I think... It wasn't previously Mark McGee had been at Leicester and, and he had bid quite a substantial amount of money for me to take me south again and Hibbs had knocked it back. I was a bit disappointed at how that had happened and you know I, I kind of wanted that opportunity. But ironically, I was a Bosman in Europe 
but I wasn't a Bosman in the UK because it took another year. Did. So, for instance, I couldn't go to a Premier League club for nothing, but I could go to an Austrian team or a French. So I spoke to three teams. One, one was uh, a Swiss team, uh, St. Gallen, yeah. another team, uh, Gengon in, in France, and I spoke to Sturm Graz. And uh, the Sturm Graz one was the one that, that really appealed because they were an ambitious club. They had a good financial model. It had come off the back of we had played Austria in the last European qualification game in, in Belfast and I had, I had scored two on the night and the game actually knocked Austria out of the, the chance to go to the Euros in, in 96. So they had remembered that game. And, uh, but it, it, it broke down at the last minute because the coach was a Yugoslavian and he had a Yugoslavian player that he wanted. You know, so there was a bit and it kind of stalled a little bit. And in the period of it stalling, Coventry came in and it was Gordon Strachan that had come in Ron Atkinson was the manager but Gordon was being obviously groomed to take the job and I think he was already sort of operating in terms of bringing players in he seized on the opportunity and, and probably got me out of Hibs for you know, less money because Hibs will turn up maybe well if he goes to Austria we're going to get nothing, nothing. if he goes to Coventry we, we're at least going to get something uh, decent so that's kind of how it happened really and uh, you know I went, I went south but it's one of those things again that I, I often wish that I'd taken up the opportunity to go abroad, I definitely think. The spirit of adventure, if nothing yeah, else, the discovery. Yeah, totally, exactly. And, and to experience a different, a different culture, a different language, and, and, and a different way in, in how football is, I suppose, what it means in a country as well. Like what, what part does football play in society in that country the same way as what we see it, you know, here? Well, on that basis, Uruguay and Chile had a big impact on you over and above what it did for your players and the results. So when we talked in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago, I think we shared an understanding that maybe, for example, in Uruguay compared to Santiago and Chile, you could see something that would at least begin to explain Luis Suarez. Mm. And I remember on television at the time of the Liverpool incidents, the biting, you just instinctively felt that we there was a degree of mm, maybe hysteria, maybe yeah. slight overreaction, but it wasn't a popular position that you took. It was an instinctive, no. honest one. Yeah. But then going to his country showed you something, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, it was in the World Cup, in 2014 World Cup, and the, the Chilini incident was, was the main one. And uh, I had been to Uruguay. I had actually visited FC Nacional, Suarez's first club. And the people there were great, great people. You could just tell. Total football people. They explained, you know, Suarez's background and how he had come to the club as, a, I think, a 14-year-old or something like that there. And he had been, like, basically doing anything, you know, like, selling bottles or whatever he'd been doing to, to, to try and have some sort of income and he'd come from quite a big family and, and that type of thing and he lived under the stand basically which they had rooms under the stand and they said this is where Suarez stayed and there were no longer rooms I just sort of thought you know the one thing you know that I felt the environment of and the Uruguayan players I think we all know they're tough you know what I mean that they're, they're resilient you know for a country of that size of three and a half million people to consistently what it's done in world football, world cups, I, I think is enormous. And they're not blessed with huge facilities. You know, we're in a situation here now in, in the UK where like every pitch has to be like a snooker table. Every, you know, everything has to be perfect. There has to be an ice bath after the game. It, it, Uruguay doesn't have that. It doesn't have that level of investment in the game. It doesn't have the financial resource to do it. Yet it continually produces, you know, it's got two of the best strikers in the world in Cavani and, and Suarez, you know, Diego Forlan, great players. I think when you go and visit, you kind of see what makes a player maybe what he is, you know, the environment he's come from. You can't condone 
obviously the bite, but I thought there was mass hysteria to it. I, I genuinely did. I thought that, like, you know, no player's career has ever been finished due to a bite. <laughs> and he's more liable to damage himself as opposed to anything else. Maybe because he was a Liverpool player as well. You know, I had a bit of an empathy with him. But I, I voted, it's funny, you know, it's one of the privileges you get as a national team coach, obviously, is you vote in the Ballon d'Or. Yeah. And I voted for Suarez uh, last season because I felt that, you know, he went from a season of, he missed the opening part of the season through the suspension and, and, and uh, you know, Barcelona had to take that on, had to take that liability on with him. Yet ultimately by the end of the season, he had scored the winning goal in the Champions League final. And I thought his rehabilitation again was worthy of, of that. Listen, Ronaldo and Messi are, as we know, are on, on, on a different planet. But sometimes it takes other things that, you know, there's other qualities you have to look for in a player. And I think that, you know, you know, you touched on it when, when we met a few weeks in, in Barcelona uh, a few weeks ago. You said, like, Suarez has been a huge positive within Barcelona. And, and he is, I think, a player that when he's in your team, the other players all respond to him. And that's a great quality to have, you know. It was an education for me because, you know, I, I wouldn't like to call myself hysterical, but more than the biting, and this is not the incident that you were talking about and trying to talk down, but... During the Ever incident, I, I got on my high horse. I thought he was wrong, and I couldn't believe that he got support from his squad for it. But then maybe that tells you something about not having been in a professional dressing room, not mm. having trained and worked with people every day in my mm. part. And therefore, when, when he came to Barcelona, he, the guys who ghost wrote his autobiography with him, Pete Jensen, and said, Lowe said to me, you'll change your mind. And while you and, and your squad were in Montevideo, I think, um, Suarez didn't play against you because he was in physical rehab yeah. from a late knee ligament injury that he'd, he'd taken from Liverpool to try and get ready for the World Cup. And they said to me that even though they were helping ghostwrite his autobiography, they couldn't get near him because he was working out at least twice a day and then getting physiotherapy. And therefore, he was just like, listen, my book will have to wait. This is, it's everything to me to play in the World Cup. And when he got to Barcelona, you, you're right, the, the players around him were saying that the, the daily intensity, every minute of every training session mattered to him intensely, mm. matched what Luis Enrique was trying. And it's not as if they, it was like a cattle prod to them and that no. they were hardly on their sun loungers themselves, but it did add a level of demand and a level of, I want this, do you want this as much as me? And they embraced him, they loved it. And, and it, I was very surprised he wasn't in the top three. You wouldn't see Ronaldo right now outside a top three, but to me there was no question that it was some order of Messi, Neymar, Suarez last season. Redemption, I think, is a big theme in sport and in life, and mm. you can find another path after you've been a little bit lost. So, yeah. you know, without saying that I can rid myself completely of, the, of his behaviour and the everything, I would say that if you're born with very little and you're living under a stand and you've got nothing and you're fighting, you can do things that you might regret at another time. Of course. Um, a different character, but a man who was good to you and initially went to... We've talked about, and Damien Duff again mm. talked a lot about being a kid abroad from Ireland at Blackburn Rovers and suffering and wanting to go home and Kenny Douglas saying to Tim Sherwood, go and rescue that guy, go and make sure that he stays and talk to his parents and say... Whatever, I think that one of the guys that when you got to Newcastle aged 17, 18, mm -hmm. pretty much straight out of school. Yeah, yeah. That Gaza was yeah. very positive to yeah. be around for you as, a, mm -hmm. as an individual, not just a... Great player yeah. to watch. He terrified me, first of all, <laughs> yeah, probably because did. I'd come from school. But Darren Jackson was there at the time as well. Yeah, and Darren, right Darren had come down from Scotland. He was two or three years older. Darren was three years older than me, and Gaza was 
So twenty one, yeah. There was about three years between me and Darren, about just over two and a bit between myself and Paul, and they were tight. And uh, I think it was probably initially Darren because Darren had come from Meadowbank at the time to go to Newcastle, and he kind of understood me because I was coming from Corey, and it was a similar sort of scenario, coming essentially at part time football in a club like Newcastle, and he had adapted very well to, you know, him, him and Paul. They included me straight away. That was the biggest thing, you know. They, they, at times, you know, I would have been the brunt of the humour. There was a the price to pay for it. Yeah, there was a yeah. price. And, and maybe at the time I wasn't, you know, I, I, I could never, maybe at times didn't always get my head around that. But that inclusiveness for a footballer is huge, I think. It's a huge thing to find that you are part of it, that you're included, that you're not sitting there thinking, oh, I'm dreading the dressing room this morning, or I'm dreading, you know, what, what's, you know, how, how I am perceived in the group, or, or am I part of the group? And probably, you know, not long after I went to Newcastle, we, we were, we had a free weekend for some reason, and we, we were taken away to Benidorm, and, and we did a bit of training and stuff. And it was a big thing, that week was huge for me, because I, I had never even been away as a kid, I'd never been on like a boys' holiday or something. So going away at that age with men, as I perceived them, that was terrifying as well. Full of risk. Yeah, and and how? But again, it was it was a huge thing for me. And, and and Paul had a way where he was very demanding, right? And he could fly off the handle in training, or he could, you know, he could give you a mouthful on the pitch. And I remember in my debut, I made my debut against Charlton. The chemistry between me and him and the pitch wasn't great at that time. He was looking to play little things around the corner and I was running in behind. And it was kind of making him look bad, I suppose, in a way. And he was, you know, giving me a lot of verbals during the game. And I pretty much just took it. Maybe once or twice I would have chipped back. But when we came in on the Monday, and I hadn't seen it, he came in on the Monday and he, put, he, says, he says, I'm sorry. He says, I shouldn't have done that. He says, I've been thinking about it all weekend. You came in, you were involved in, in setting up the equaliser. He says... Just when you go on that pitch, take the ball. He says, make sure you take the ball. And, you know, no one can ever accuse Paul of never taking the ball on the pitch. You know, the responsibility he took on the pitch, yeah, the opposite, it. it was totally the opposite. And it stuck with me, really. It always did stick with me in my mind to say, well, actually, I want it to be that type of player. I want it to be, that, to be able to take that responsibility that he took. But it meant a lot that he would come to me that day and say, listen, I'm sorry. And, and, and our relationship probably then, then grew from that. And I hadn't seen him for years. And it was funny, we were at Tottenham in the Europa League when I was at Shamrock Rovers. And just by coincidence, he was at the game. And he had waited for me after the game. And it was really nice, nice to see him again, you know. He thought you could play. That was yeah, the thing. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, in those days, initially, even though, I mean, he was, a, he was a fabulous footballer even then. But I suppose he was still... He was still making his way, and, mm. and it's not as if he had bags of experience, but he saw a player and told you so, and, and mm. I think you had 13 or 14, 12 or 13 goals in, mm-hmm. in only 22 games at Newcastle, out of and a decent side at that mm-hmm. stage, and to be told that you could play yeah, I mean, by oh, a fellow like that. Oh, totally. When you're a young player like that, you know, when you get that level of, I suppose, uh, it's like approval, really, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's, it's like a, it's a level of approval that you know you respond to that and uh, you know it did it gave me confidence and belief and I had a great first season and maybe Paul leaving was the wrong thing for me because I think then the expectation on me was greater than the next season the team wasn't as strong equally you know we, we tried to replace him it was a little bit like a modern day I suppose Suarez situation when he left Liverpool where they tried to compensate for the look you can't replace the one player so you, you bring in four or five players that's what we, we did at Newcastle, and, and it didn't work. Mm. You know, and we, we subsequently were relegated. But probably, you know, him staying and being in the team would have helped me, certainly, in the second season as well. What has been the, 
I'm thinking about personalities here. What's been the idea about bringing, occasionally bringing Carl mm. Frampton and Gary Lightbody into, mm -hmm. into squad groups? What's the...? I just think that I wanted the players to... It, there's always a risk to these things, you know what I mean? You always think as a manager, like, if this goes flat here, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's not going to look particularly good. And uh, Carl came in and, and uh, he, had, he knew one or two of the lads anyway. But the, the great thing for me was the response of the players to him. The players were like, there's Frampton, you know what I mean? It was, it was, a, it was a big thing. They were all like, they're all getting their pictures taken, all of that Fantastic, kind of thing, you know, yeah. th th those types of little things. He was the same. Like, he was like, can you get Steve? He, went, he had a shirt. He says, can you get Steven to sign that shirt? So I was like, yeah, we'll get Steve, no problem. We watched the fight together. We all sat around the TV. We watched his fight, as, as, and uh, then they did a Q and A. We did a Q and A with him, and I think it's very important for them to understand what sacrifices he had made to get to where he was. And I think it means more when it's someone from Northern Ireland, you know, as opposed to bringing in someone else. These are the sacrifices that he's your own. He's he's, he's you. Yeah, he's you, and this is what he's got to. And, you know, I think the players... And it was good for him because he was actually subsequently... I didn't realise this, but on, on Football Focus, they had, like, a celebrity interviewer. And he was the interviewer on the... So, and he had a, it was a bit of an icebreaker for him with the, with the boys as well, and it was good. And, you know, when you saw it, I think, when, when he, in his last fight in Manchester, like, there was loads of lads there. And it's just a good thing, you know. The Gary Lightbody one was good because... He's a huge Northern Ireland Snow fan. Patrol. Yes, yeah, Let's say for Emery doesn't know. He doesn't know. Talented I, man. I, I, I'm not a huge music fan, but he got him. We got him and he says, listen, we have to get him to sing. Yeah. We weren't sure whether he, he would sing on his own. I didn't know whether he could sing acoustically, just or whether, you know, it's, you've obviously seen him with the band. But he came in and he did a wee bit. Of, we, he, he, we put him in the warm-up and then he did a bit of crossing and finishing towards the end with the lads. <laughs> and he doesn't look like a footballer, to be fair. But he made his day. It, yeah, really, it was the Northern Ireland manager <laughs> who said that, not me. And uh, he was uh, just a really good lad. Just, again, so you go... And the reaction of the players to him, he sang for us. The lads were all videoing it on their phones. And, and, and I just think it's nice to sort of... He actually he says, guys, you have no idea what it will mean if we can qualify. And when, when people like that say it, it, it resonates so much more, I think, as well, you know. So between now and the summer, are we, we've one or two that we're, we're hoping, oh, we're hoping we can get Rory in, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rory McElroy. Fanatical United man, I think, isn't he? Yeah, and so I'm, it's a tough ask for a Liverpool man. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, but <laughs> we'll we'll overlook that. But uh, yeah, he was at the game, the Greece game, for example, and, and I know he, he thought the experience was fantastic. The atmosphere in the stadium that night was brilliant, and um, so one or two others. You know what I mean? I've, I, uh, I'd love to get AP McCoy in, for example, just because the level of sacrifice that these guys go to. It's important, you know, sometimes, you know, I always think, and maybe that goes back to the Jim McLean situation because McLean used to have these meetings and you'd go away from the meetings always questioning yourself, I'm not doing enough. He always had that. So, you know, whether, you know, you sit in front of an AP McCoy or Rory McElroy, they tell you their story, you ask them questions, you know, you, you know, a card front and... You know, and Carla said to the lad, when I started, I wasn't living right, I wasn't doing enough to give me a chance to be where I am now. And he said, light bulb went off in his head one day, no, I'm going to stop doing that, this is what I'm going to do. And, and you know, you could see the players were hanging on his every word, you know, and, and if they take that away individually, hopefully they'll benefit from that. But, you know, if you can harness that into the group as well. So you made me go back to where you started and that 
you inherited players who through no great fault of their own were in a rut. And if they could never have sat down and articulated that they felt like losers or that they felt that they were doomed to lose for the national team, mm. that's possibly what was in the back of their, their brain. Having been the player whisperer for them and, and brought them to a new level of success, you're now not just saying to them, look what AP did or look what this, this world champion fighter or this world famous pop star did. You're making them feel that you believe your players are in that ilk. Subliminally, they're going, the manager thinks we can be like them. We're, we're, we're like and like, we're in company. Yeah. It's a really strong message for a guy who's maybe trying to use Northern Ireland and his, his appearances there to, to punch his way out of Division One or yeah. out of the Championship to the Premier League. Showing your own players something very powerful there about what you think of them, I, I think. think. I, I, well, yeah, I think so. I'm, I mean, I, I've just always looked at any type of things as... Will it, will it be a positive? And, and even sometimes, more so, if it's not going to be a positive, will it be a negative? You know, and, and it's obviously nothing that I ever would. So the risk in doing it and, and, and captivating and, and, and getting the players isn't that high. And, and, you know, it's funny, I spoke to... I was at a dinner recently in London and, and I spoke to Paul McGinley. I said, like, I loved... I'd, I'd seen the programme and I'd love what he'd done with the Ryder Cup team and how... And, and, and he said, you know, he talked about some of the things that he'd done and, and he says, you have to get into their heart before you get into their head. And it's so true, really. It's so true that, yeah, we, we had to give the players back the passion to play for Northern Ireland. They had to find... Well, not that we had to give it. They had to find it again is a better way. I, I don't have that part to give it to them. But they, they had to find it again. That, that's something that would give me as much pleasure out of qualification as anything as that. We now have a group of players and hopefully a group of players to come and, and because of what this group of players have done, that you know, it, it feeds down through the generations of players that have a, a huge passion that want to play for Northern Ireland, you know, and, and that's, as I say, for me, that's, that's the biggest positive of the lot. Confession three themes. The first is an easy one um, because I know we both agree on a subject. Tony Evans mm-hmm. should be playing Champions League football. 100% respect to Tony Pillis from West, West Brom, mm-hmm. and I hope they excel for as long as they're together. But until West Brom is playing Champions League football, mm-hmm. my personal opinion is that Johnny Evans probably should be using West Brom as a, as a place to find a, a bigger club because he is, I, I think he's deeply undervalued, underrated as a, as a defender, as, a, as an individual footballer, as an athlete, as a leader, and somebody who can give things to a group beyond what he does with the ball. Mm-hmm. Are you of the same opinion? Yeah, certainly. Johnny's clever. He's intelligent, not just in terms of his football ability, but he's he's intelligent about how he lives his life, and you know he's he's interested in learning. It's very, which I think is not that common in the market because this generation of players they're never going to have to test themselves in terms of earning a living outside of football. So you know if you've got that level of security and that level of finance, you know why bother? But Johnny's interested in learning, which I, which I think which makes him interesting to me. I, I like that. Um, I was surprised that you know when, when he became available, that perhaps again without being disrespectful, was that bigger clubs or bigger perceived clubs in the Premier League didn't weren't, weren't uh, after Johnny. Yeah, me too. No yeah, I, I genuinely was. I mean, I, I looked at now. I know he'd had injuries, and whether that put people off, I'm not. I'm not sure if that was what it was. But I always remember we played in Porto against Portugal, and it was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's 100th cap, and it was all set up, full house, 45,000. It was a wet night, 
you know, they had Lewis Figo was there to, to present the cap to Ronaldo. And we were there, we were wheeled in. Lambs to the slaughter. Lambs to the slaughter. <laughs> and, you know, everyone played great that night, but Johnny Evans was phenomenal that night in terms of the level of his performance. Not only, like, he was involved, he set our goal up, he stepped in, won the ball, played a great pass to Kyle. Kyle did great sets up for Niall McGinn, and we're leading the game 1-0. And we led to the 81st minute, and we just we we lost a, a, an equaliser in the last uh, eight or nine minutes of the game. But his level of performance that you night. You're saying he rose to the occasion as well as his ability, aren't you? Yeah, but his his, his leadership that night was phenomenal. I just remember. But it, the quality of his play, and the way the game is now, where mo- mobility, I think, is almost the biggest thing for a, a centre back because the game's less. Uh, there's less contact now, so you have to be able to move, you have to be able to read the game, you have to be able to play like that. I'd love to see him get the opportunity to play abroad because I really think that you watch Spanish football and you, and you look at how some of the teams play and how, for example, they'll play, they're happy to defend 2v2. Yeah. Johnny defended like man for man a lot at Manchester United when he played. And, uh, you know, it's a big summer for him. You know, I think, again, you talk about the impacts of certain players in the tournament, the stages they're at in their career, and Kyle obviously comes into that category, and a lot of the younger ones come into that category. But, you know, it, it, it could be a massive tournament for Johnny as well because he will get that chance to demonstrate, which obviously both of us believe that you I know, do. He, he can play at the top, the, 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 the highest, highest level of the game. I'm glad to have that vindicated by a man who knows more about football than me. The, the, the penultimate one, then, is you, you talked about reawakening the passion in the players and recalibrating them. You've almost done a reset on some of them. You've certainly done a reset on the performance, the points. You've won a group in a tournament. You refer to it a lot as the National Stadium mm-hmm. rather than Windsor Park. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a sociological, political thing. It's, it's been a difficult place in the past. Yeah. I remember talking to Terry Gibson, who was coaching with Laurie Sanchez when mm-hmm. Northern Ireland beat Spain mm-hmm. in 2006, I think. Yes. And he talked about it being, there was a moat, I don't know if there is then, it yeah. was hostile, it was basic. Yeah. I want to say, when was your first experience of Windsor Park as a punter, as a fan, yeah. as a player? What do you need to do? Is the public different already? Are they, are they with you or do they remain to fall under your spell? No, I think yeah, my first experience of, of Windsor Park and, and the, the official title of it now is the National Stadium at Windsor Park. I, I, it's just so long winded. I just call it the National. Or okay. sometimes I'll call it Windsor Park. To be honest, okay. it's, it's uh, and, and like anything, there's you know probably going to be naming rights and whatever with with all these these uh, new venues. But uh, my first experience of going going to Windsor Park was I remember my dad taking me up to watch Northern Ireland play England and they beat five one. Paul Marner and Tony Woodcock scored uh, two each, I think, for, for England on the day. And England were very good. I think Trevor Francis played. And, it might be a Ron Greenwood side, was it? Probably, Maybe. yeah, it was. It must have they been. They could play. They had, yeah. they, had, they had 30 really good international yeah. players in that era. They had, they had yeah. To pick from just like that, no matter who was yeah, there. Totally. Was... And I remember, I think, actually, Mills might have been playing it right back, that era of players anyway. Yeah. And uh, So that was my real first experience. And Windsor Park would have, because at the time, you know, it's Linfield's home ground, you know, it wasn't a place where Catholics would have gone. Let's say, you know, and that's, you know, wouldn't, you know, and so for my dad to bring me there would have been quite a big thing for him to do, to be fair, you know, and, and uh, to feel that comfortable doing that. I'm not sure really. The next time I would have been there would have been probably playing for Corian against Linfield. And it could be quite a hostile environment in those days. It's been one of those places which I think it, it has been and at times probably unfairly, uh, at times 
seen as an air, as a sectarian kind of venue, obviously, you know, like the Northern Ireland team, the Catholics, you know, wouldn't come and support them because, the, you know, Windsor Park was a big part of that and, and how Catholics perceive it in particular. My hope is that, that I, I don't believe that so many barriers have been broken down. You know, the IFA have done a magnificent job of that. You know, the, 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 the atmosphere in the stadium is so positive. I think that we have a team, certainly, that represents both sides of the community. Um, and, and I don't feel that we've never not had that, to be fair. Even when I played, we always had that, to be fair. Although I did play, you know, at times, I remember Anton Rogan getting abuse because he was a Celtic player. Yeah. Neil didn't get abuse, really. So, but it was only when he went to Celtic and, 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 you know, from having been at Leicester that, you know, the issues happened when he came and played for Northern Ireland. Where it went just completely beyond the bounds of acceptability. Uh, uh, totally, under yeah. Under any circumstance. Uh, under any, you know, it just... And, but now, you know, what I see is, is a vibrant, modern stadium. Northern Ireland shirts everywhere. You know, a shirt that is there for, for Northern Ireland. It doesn't represent one side of the community. It represents both sides of the community. You know, what, what I want to see is that those last remaining barriers that perhaps people, you know, who still feel that that's, you know, reluctant or, you know, anxiety about going to Windsor Park, that they won't feel that. We can eradicate that. That, that, that we can eradicate It's a wonderful feeling. And then I close on something I was going to ask you about, but it's patently a passion. Liverpool Football Club. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really taken by it. Um, how, did they, how did they do in Europe the other night? They won the uh, Dortmund game, yeah, they won. Mm. Yeah, it was fantastic. What the hell was that? It's phenomenal, wasn't Football, it? Football, bloody hell, eh? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was phenomenal. It was like, it's still special. Just for the record, the Northern Ireland manager is <laughs> smiling very broadly indeed. <laughs> yeah, Liverpool was just, when I grew up, Liverpool, I, I was a Liverpool fanatic. Why? I don't really know, to be honest. You know, I, I look back and think, why did they become my team? And they were my team from such a young age. Going back to Keegan, maybe Keegan and Toshak, and then I was devastated when Keegan left. And then, you know, they brought down Dalglish, who I didn't know an awful lot about. But my dad had a friend who was a big Celtic fan, Martin Hanya. He was a tax inspector in Glasgow, and he says, "Listen, Dalglish," and he brought me. He used to bring me things when he came over, and he'd bring me pictures of Dalglish playing for Celtic and stuff. And um, I remember when Dalglish came and. and then, you know, I was just in awe of Doug. Keegan was forgotten about quickly, so he was. And, uh, but, yeah, and I, I suppose when you grow up, you know, as a kid, to watch football, Liverpool give you the magical nights. Anfield, you know, I remember them playing in the, winning the UEFA Cup, coming from behind to beat St Etienne. And I think, going back to sports night, I remember that game vividly being on sports night. And I remember, you know, those big games, the European Cup finals, winning the leagues, the players that came down, you know, the sticker books, all of the kind of things that, you know, are coming back. It's nice to see that for the Euros, the sticker books are back and that kind of thing. And, and it just always was a, was a huge, huge passion of mine, Liverpool. I never, as I say, got to see them play in, in the flesh. I never got to see any of those, the, the, those teams play. But uh, it's always stuck with me and you, always, you never lose it. Like, like, I wouldn't claim to be any sort of big Liverpool fan now. I love to see them do well, you know, first of all. But I, like, anything, like all of the teams, Manchester United, you know, so I, I, I like to see the English teams all do well. You played you know? there? At Anfield. You played at yeah, Anfield? Yeah, a couple of times, yeah. We won there, actually. Yeah, I was going to say... We won, with yeah. Coventry? No, with, with, with Newcastle. With Newcastle? Yeah, we How won. How did that go? It was, we were 1-0 up, actually. We, John Henry scored. I, I set the goal up, and then they equalised, and it was a really good team. It was, that team was about 88, 89. Beardsley. Kenny O'Gleish was the manager. It was Beardsley, Barnes, uh, Ray Houghton, 
Steve McMahon maybe was playing in midfield. Steve Nicol, I was playing against Steve Nicol, I remember that. I think Hansen was still playing actually as well. We took a bit of a beating in the second half, but we hung in and we defended and, and we got a penalty with uh, five minutes to go. And uh, Mirandinha, who was the only Brazilian in, in English football at the time, strode up and could you like. It was a modern penalty actually, because he weighed it for the goalkeeper and he just rolled it in the other side and we won 2-1. And it was, a, it was a great feeling, actually, you know, it was great. But even now, like, I still think there's something, it's still, you know, one of the luxuries you get as an international manager is you get to go and watch games and, you know, you're in these fabulous stadiums and you know, watching top-class football. But like, one of the best atmospheres I was at in, in recent times was, um, was Liverpool versus Bolton in the FA Cup. And Neil Lennon was the manager at Bolton and, and I had gone, there was a player at Bolton that I was watching and um, I had gone earlier in the day to Blackburn versus Swansea in the FA Cup. And what you see with the FA Cup now is, you know, grounds are 50% populated, mm. if, if you're lucky. Mm. Not a great atmosphere, you know, season tickets. Anfield was rammed. You know, it was a, it was a later kickoff in the day. Bolton brought a good six, 8,000 fans with them. And the atmosphere was spectacular. It was nil-nil. The game was actually nil-nil, but it was a great nil-nil, you know. And, and the, the atmosphere was, was was pretty special, you know. And it's something that probably, you know, we've lost a little bit in, in a lot of the big grounds now. Took you back to sports night and David Coleman and <laughs> yeah, and and one day, one day maybe. <laughs> no, I, I, look, I, you know, you prepare, talented, you plan. Let's leave the first man to take Northern Ireland to a tournament since 1986 in charge of his country for a little while longer. Mm. But what, what will happen is that as your abilities are clearer, as your successes grow, people will try to place you at Celtic, mm. undoubtedly. People will look at, um, should you be in charge of a Premier League club? And at some stage, given that you're still a very young man, mm -hmm. at some stage, presumably, daily work will appeal to you. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's probably inevi inevitable. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you have to plan for success, what, why not plan for one day Michael O'Neill Liverpool manager? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, it's... I think it, football now is so, it's so difficult to plan, I think, it's, it is the nature, like I often, you know, and I, you know, I know Brendan well and I was gutted when he, he lost the job because I think, you know, in, in many ways he'd done so many good things, you know, I, I definitely think he'd done so many good things and the chance to, you know, it came so soon, like you, you never get that, you never know when you're going to get that opportunity, like I didn't, in the grand scheme of things, I didn't expect to be the manager of my country at 42. It's not, you know, at the time, I think it was the third youngest head coach in Europe. You don't, but the opportunity presented itself. I took it and we are where we are now. And so, you know, all of those things would be lovelier to happen. But, you know, it's one of those things. If, if, the, if the opportunity presents itself and it's presented to me, of course, it would be a phenomenal experience to go through that. But time will tell. Well, the Euro has got a lot to give you all. Kyle Lafferty, man of the tournament, scorer of the tournament. <laughs> Big Champions League move for Johnny Evans and uh, the first rung on the ladder to Anfield supremacy for <laughs> Michael O'Neill. I used the phrase the player whisperer earlier on. I wasn't being facetious. Fantastic to feel the articulacy and communication and sense of enjoyment of football that your players are benefiting from. Privilege and a lot of fun. Thanks Thank for joining us in the big interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. Magical. May you win the tournament. Thank you. <laughs> this is recorded before the European Championships. Northern Ireland have a tough group, so who knows how it goes. But if you've listened to all that and you don't agree with me, 
that Northern Ireland's major task now is persuading Michael O'Neill to stay when the really big clubs come and offer him day-to-day involvement with footballers, day-to-day wrestling with the type of sports psychology problems and motivation that he's so evidently brilliant at, then you've been listening to a different podcast. For the moment, the big interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter, and also edited by the splendid Alex Aidy at Audioboom. If you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing, then get on grahamhunter.tv. There's a little box for your email address. Get on our mailing list. We'll keep you up to date with everything. Sign up. You'll get our newsletter, which includes the chance to put all your questions to our guests. Whenever I don't forget to do it, we will do it. The Big Interview is on Facebook. Search for <coughs> The Big Interview. And GH Podcast is how you find us on Twitter or Instagram. Keep in touch. Let us know what you think. Let us know who you'd like us to interview what your questions are and also give us some of your random nonsense too I love that I can be randomly full of nonsense myself as you already know thanks for listening love and kisses small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.